0: Book One, Chapter Twenty Four of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Twenty Four, Fortune Telling. Little Dorrit received a call that same evening from Mr. Plornish, who, having intimated that he wished to speak to her privately, in a series of coughs so very noticeable as to favour the idea that her father, as regarded her seamstress occupation, was an illustration of the axiom that there are no such stone-blind men as those who will not see, obtained an audience with her on the common staircase outside the door. "'There's been a lady at our place to-day, Miss Dorrit,' Plornish growled, "'and another one along with her, as is a old wixen.' if ever i met with such the way she snapped a person's head off dear me the mild plornish was at first quite unable to get his mind away from mr f s aunt for said he to excuse himself she is i do assure you the winigeriest party at length by a great effort he detached himself from the subject sufficiently to observe "'But she's neither here nor there, just at present. "'The other lady, she's Mr. Casby's daughter. "'And if Mr. Casby ain't well off, none better. "'It ain't through any fault of Panks. "'For, as to Panks, he does. "'He really does. "'He does indeed.' "'Mr. Plornish, after his usual manner, "'was a little obscure, but conscientiously emphatic.' "'And what she come to our place for?' he pursued. "'Or to leave word that if Miss Dorrit would step up to that card, "'which it's Mr. Casby's house, that is, "'and Pank's he has office at the back, where he really does, beyond belief, "'she'll be glad for to engage her. "'She was a old and a dear friend,' she said, particular, of Mr. Clennam, and hoped for to prove herself a useful friend to his friend. Then was her words. Wishing to know whether Miss Dorrit could come to-morrow morning, I said I would see you, Miss, and inquire, and look round there to-night to say yes, or, if you was engaged to-morrow, when. "'I can go to-morrow, thank you,' said little Dorrit. "'This is very kind of you, but you're always kind.' Mr. Plornish, with a modest disavowal of his merits, opened the room door for her readmission, and followed her in with such an exceedingly bald pretense of not having been out at all, that her father might have observed it without being very suspicious. In his affable unconsciousness, however, he took no heed— plornish after a little conversation in which he blended his former duty as a collegian with his present privilege as a humble outside friend qualified again by his low estate as a plasterer took his leave making the tour of the prison before he left and looking on at a game of skittles with the mixed feelings of an old inhabitant who had his private reasons for believing that it might be his destiny to come back again early in the morning little dorrit leaving maggie in high domestic trust set off for the patriarchal tent. She went by the iron bridge, though it cost her a penny, and walked more slowly in that part of her journey than in any other. At five minutes before eight, her hand was on the patriarchal knocker, which was quite as high as she could reach. She gave Mrs. Finching's card to the young woman who opened the door, and the young woman told her that Miss Flora— Flora having, on her return to the parental roof, reinvested herself with the title under which she had lived there, was not yet out of her bedroom, but she was to please to walk up into Miss Flora's sitting-room. She walked up into Miss Flora's sitting-room, as in duty bound, and there found a breakfast-table, comfortably laid for two, with a supplementary tray upon it, laid for one. The young woman, disappearing for a few moments, returned to say that she was to please to take a chair by the fire and to take off her bonnet and make herself at home but little dorrit being bashful and not used to make herself at home on such occasions felt at a loss how to do it so she was still sitting near the door with her bonnet on when flora came in in a hurry half an hour afterwards flora was so sorry to have kept her waiting and, good gracious, why did she sit out there in the cold, when she had expected to find her by the fire reading the paper, and hadn't that heedless girl given her the message then, and had she really been in her bonnet all this time, and pray for goodness' sake, let Flora take it off. Flora, taking it off, in the best-natured manner in the world, was so struck with the face disclosed, that she said, "'Why, what a good little thing you are, my dear!' and pressed her face between her hands like the gentlest of women." it was the word and the action of a moment little dorrit had hardly time to think how kind it was when flora dashed at the breakfast-table full of business and plunged over head and ears into loquacity really so sorry that i should happen to be late on this morning of all mornings because my intention and my wish was to be ready to meet you when you came in and to say that any one that interested arthur clennam half so much must interest me and that i gave you the heartiest welcome and was so glad instead of which they never called me and there i still am snoring i dare say if the truth was known and if you don't like either cold fowl or hot boiled ham which many people don't i dare say besides jews and there's our scruples of conscience which we must all respect though i must say i wish they had them equally strong when they sell us false articles for real "'Certainly ain't worth the money. I shall be quite vexed,' said Flora. Little Dorrit thanked her, and said, shyly, bread and butter and tea was all she usually. "'Oh, nonsense, my dear child! I can never hear of that,' said Flora, turning on the urn in the most reckless manner, and making herself wink by splashing hot water into her eyes as she bent down to look into the teapot. "'You are coming here on the footing of a friend and companion, you know. "'If you'll let me take that liberty, and I should be ashamed of myself indeed, "'if you could come here upon any other besides which Arthur Clennam spoke in such terms, "'you are tired, my dear.' "'No, ma'am.' "'You turn so pale. "'You have walked too far before breakfast, and I dare say live a great way. Often ought to have had a ride,' said Flora. "'Dear, dear, is there anything that would do you good?' "'Indeed, I am quite well, ma'am. "'I thank you again and again, but I am quite well.' "'Then take your tea at once, I beg,' said Flora. "'And this wing of fowl, and bit of ham, don't mind me, or wait for me, because I always carry in this tray myself to Mr. F.'s aunt, who breakfast in bed, and a charming old lady, too, and very clever, portrait of Mr. F. behind the door, and very like, though, too much forehead, and as to a pillow with a marble pavement and balustrades in a mountain, I never saw him near, it, or not likely in the wine-trade, excellent man, but not at all in that way.' Little Dorrit glanced at the portrait, very imperfectly following the references to that work of art. "'Mr. F. was so devoted to me that he never could bear me out of his sight,' said Flora. "'Though, of course, I am unable to say how long that might have lasted, if he hadn't been cut short while I was a new broom, worthy man, but not poetical, manly prose, but not romance.' Little Dorrit glanced at the portrait again. The artist had given it a head that would have been, in an intellectual point of view, top-heavy for Shakespeare. "'Romance, however,' Flora went on busily arranging Mr. F.'s aunt's toast. As I openly said to Mr. F., when he proposed to me, and you will be surprised to hear that he proposed seven times, once in a hackney-coach, once in a boat, once in a pew, once in a donkey at Tunbridge Wells, and the rest on his knees, romance was fled with the early days of Arthur Clennam. Our parents tore us asunder. We became marble, and stern reality usurped the throne. Mr. F. said very much to his credit that he was perfectly aware of it, and even preferred that state of things accordingly. The word was spoken, the fiat went forth, and such is life, you see, my dear, and yet we do not break but bend. Pray make a good breakfast while i go in with the tray she disappeared leaving little dorrit to ponder over the meaning of her scattered words she soon came back again and at last began to take her own breakfast talking all the while you see my dear said flora measuring out a spoonful or two of some brown liquid that smelt like brandy and putting it into her tea i am obliged to be careful to follow the directions of my medical man though the flavour is anything but agreeable being a poor creature and it may be have never recovered the shock received in youth from too much giving way to crying in the next room when separated from arthur have you known him long as soon as little dorrit comprehended that she had been asked this question for which time was necessary the galloping pace of her new patroness having left her far behind she answered that she had known mr clennam ever since his return "'To be sure, you couldn't have known him before, unless you had been in China, or had corresponded neither of which is likely,' returned Flora. "'For travelling people usually get more or less mahogany, and you are not at all so. And as to corresponding, what about? That's very true, unless tea. So it was at his mother's, was it, really, that you knew him first, highly sensible and firm, but dreadfully severe, or to be the mother of the man in the iron mask?' "'Mrs. Clennam has been very kind to me,' said Little Dorrit. "'Really?' "'I am sure I am glad to hear it, because, as Arthur's mother, it's naturally pleasant to my feelings to have a better opinion of her than I had before, Then what she thinks of me when I run on, as I am certain to do, and she sits glowering at me like fate in a go-cart—oh, shocking comparison, really—invalid, and not her fault, I never know, or can imagine. "'Shall I find my work anywhere, ma'am?' asked little Dorrit, looking timidly about. "'Can I get it?' "'You industrious little fairy!' returned Flora, taking, in another cup of tea, another of the doses prescribed by her medical man. "'There's not the slightest hurry, and it's better that we should begin by being confidential about our mutual friend—too cold a word for me, at least I don't mean that—very proper expression, mutual friend—than become, through mere formalities, not you, but me, like a Spartan boy with the fox-biting him, which I hope you'll excuse my bringing up for all of the tiresome boys that will go tumbling into every sort of company that boys are tiresome!' Little Dorrit, her face very pale, sat down again to listen. "'Hadn't I better work the while?' she asked. "'I can work and attend, too. I would rather, if I may.' Her earnestness was so expressive of her being uneasy without her work, that Flora answered, "'Well, my dear, whatever you like best,' and produced a basket of white handkerchiefs. Little Dorrit gladly put it by her side, took out her little pocket housewife, threaded the needle, and began to hem. "'What nimble fingers you have!' said flora but are you sure you are well oh yes indeed flora put her feet upon the fender and settled herself for a thorough good romantic disclosure she started off at score tossing her head sighing in the most demonstrative manner making a great deal of use of her eyebrows and occasionally but not often glancing at the quiet face that bent over the work you must know my dear said flora but that i have no doubt you know already not only because i have already thrown it out in a general way but because i feel i carry it stamped in burning what's-his-name's upon my brow that before i was introduced to the late mr f i had been engaged to arthur clennam mr <coughs> clennam in public where reserve is necessary arthur here we are all in all to one another it was the morning of life it was bliss it was frenzy it was everything else of that sort in the highest degree when rent to sunder, we turned to stone in rich capacity arthur went to china and i became the statue bride of the late mr f Flora, uttering these words in a deep voice, enjoyed herself immensely. "'To paint!' said she the emotions of that morning when all was marble within and mr f s aunt followed in the glass coach which it stands to reason must have been in shameful repair it never could have broken down two streets from the house and mr f s aunt brought home like the fifth of november in a rush-bottomed chair i will not attempt suffice it to say that the hollow form of breakfast took place in the dining-room downstairs the papa partaking too freely of pickled salmon was ill for weeks and mr f and myself went upon a continental tour to calais where the people fought for us on the pier until they separated us though not for ever that was not yet to be The statue bride, hardly pausing for breath, went on, with the greatest complacency, in a rambling manner, sometimes incidental to flesh and blood. "'I will draw a veil over that dreamy life. Mr. F. was in good spirits. His appetite was good. He liked the cookery. He considered the wine weak, but palatable, and all was well. We returned to the immediate neighbourhood of number 30, Little Gosling Street, London docks, and settling down, ere we had yet fully detected the housemaid in setting the feathers out of the spare bed, gout flying upwards, soared with Mr. F. to another sphere.' His relict— with a glance at his portrait, shook her head, and wiped her eyes. "'I revere the memory of Mr. F., as an estimable man, and most indulgent husband, only necessary to mention asparagus, and it appeared, or to hint at any little delicate thing to drink, and it came like magic in a pint bottle. It was not ecstasy, but it was comfort. I returned to papa's roof, and lived secluded, if not happy, during some years, until one day papa came smoothly blundering in, and said that Arthur Clennam awaited me below. I went below, and found him, asked me not what I found him, except that he was still unmarried, still unchanged. The dark mystery with which Flora now enshrouded herself might have stopped other fingers and the nimble fingers that worked near her. They worked on without a pause, and a busy head bent over them, watching the stitches. "'Ask me not!' said Flora, if I love him still, or if he still loves me, or what the end is to be, or when. We are surrounded by watchful eyes, and it may be that we are destined to pine asunder. It may be never more to be reunited. Not a word, not a breath, not a look to betray us all. Must be as secret as the tomb. Wonder not, therefore, that even if I should seem comparatively cold to Arthur, or Arthur should seem comparatively cold to me, we have fatal reasons. It is enough if we understand them. Hush! All of which— Flora said, with so much headlong vehemence, as if she really believed it. There is not much doubt that when she worked herself into full mermaid condition, she did actually believe whatever she said in it. "'Hush!' repeated Flora. "'I have now told you all. Confidence is established between us. Hush! For Arthur's sake, I will always be a friend to you, my dear girl, and in Arthur's name you may always rely upon me.' The nimble fingers laid aside the work, and the little figure rose, and kissed her hand. "'You are very cold,' said Flora, changing to her own natural, kind-hearted manner, and gaining greatly by the change. "'Don't work to-day. I am sure you are not well. I am sure you are not strong. "'It is only that I feel a little overcome by your kindness, and by Mr. Clennam's kindness, in confiding me to one he has known and loved so long.' "'Well, really, my dear,' said Flora who had a decided tendency to be always honest when she gave herself time to think about it. "'It is as well to leave that alone for now, for I couldn't undertake to say after all, but it doesn't signify lie down a little while.' "'I have always been strong enough to do what I want to do, and I shall be quite well directly,' returned little Dorrit with a faint smile. "'You have overpowered me with gratitude, that's all. If I keep near the window for a moment—' I shall be quite myself." Flora opened a window, and sat her in a chair by it, and considerately retired to her former place. It was a windy day, and the air stirring on little Dorrit's face soon brightened it. In a very few minutes she returned to her basket of work, and her nimble fingers were as nimble as ever. Quietly pursuing her task, she asked Flora if Mr. Clennam had told her where she lived. When Flora replied in the negative, little Dorrit said that she understood why he had been so delicate, but that she felt sure he would approve of her confiding her secret to Flora, and that she would therefore do so now with Flora's permission. Receiving an encouraging answer, she condensed the narrative of her life into a few scanty words about herself, and a glowing eulogy upon her father, and Flora took it all in with a natural tenderness that quite understood it, and in which— there was no incoherence. When dinner-time came, Flora drew the arm of her new charge through hers, and led her downstairs, and presented her to the patriarch and Mr. Pancks, who were already in the dining-room waiting to begin. Mr. F.'s aunt was, for the time, laid up in ordinary in her chamber. By those gentlemen she was received according to their characters, the patriarch appearing to do her some inestimable service in saying that he was glad to see her— glad to see her, and Mr. Pancks blowing off his favourite sound as a salute. In that new presence, she would have been bashful enough under any circumstances, and particularly under Flora's insisting on her drinking a glass of wine, and eating of the best that there was, but her constraint was greatly increased by Mr. Pancks. The demeanour of that gentleman first suggested to her mind that he might be a taker of likenesses, so intently did he look at her and so frequently did he glance at the little notebook by his side. Observing that he made no sketch, however, and that he talked about business only, she began to have suspicions that he represented some creditor of her father's, the balance due to whom was noted in that pocket volume. Regarded from this point of view, Mr. Pancks's puffings expressed injury and impatience, and each of his louder snorts became a demand for payment." But here again she was undeceived by anomalous and incongruous conduct on the part of Mr. Pancks himself. She had left the table half an hour, and was at work alone. Flora had gone to lie down in the next room, concurrently with which retirement a smell of something to drink had broken out in the house. The patriarch was fast asleep, with his philanthropic mouth open under a yellow pocket-handkerchief in the dining-room. At this quiet time, Mr. Panks softly appeared before her, urbanely nodding. "'Find it a little dull, Miss Dorrit?' inquired Panks, in a low voice. "Uh, "'No, thank you, sir,' said little Dorrit. "'Busy, I see,' observed Mr. Panks, stealing into the room by inches. "'What are those now, Miss Dorrit?' "Handkerchiefs." "'Are they, though?' said Panks. "'I shouldn't have thought it. "'Not in the least looking at them, but looking at little Dorrit, "'perhaps you wonder who I am. "'Shall I tell you? "'I'm a fortune-teller.' "'Little Dorrit now began to think he was mad. "'I belong, body and soul, to my proprietor,' said Pancks. "'You saw my proprietor, having his dinner below. "'But I do a little in the other way, sometimes privately, "'very privately, Miss Dorrit.' "'Little Dorrit looked at him doubtfully, and not without alarm.' "'I wish you'd show me the palm of your hand,' said Pancks. "'I should like to have a look at it. "'Don't let me be troublesome.' He was so far troublesome that he was not at all wanted there. But she laid her work in her lap for a moment, and held out her left hand with her thimble on it. "'Years of toil, eh?' said Pancks softly, touching it with his blunt forefinger. "'But what else are we made for?' "'Nothing.' Hello, looking into the lines. "'What's this with bars?' "'It's a college. "'And what's this with a grey gown and a black velvet cap? "'It's a father. "'And what's this with a clarionet? "'It's an uncle. "'And what's this in dancing-shoes? "'It's a sister. "'And what's this straggling about in an idle sort of a way? "'It's a brother. "'And what's this thinking for them all?' why this is you miss dorrit her eyes met his as she looked up wonderingly into his face and she thought that although his were sharp eyes he was a brighter and gentler looking man than she had supposed at dinner his eyes were on her hand again directly and her opportunity of confirming or correcting the impression was gone now the juice is in it muttered pancks tracing out a line in her hand with his clumsy finger "'If this isn't me in the corner here, what do I want here? "'What's behind me?' "'He carried his finger slowly down to the wrist, and round the wrist, "'and affected to look at the back of the hand for what was behind him. "'Is it any harm?' asked little Dorrit, smiling. Deuce a bit,' said Pancks. "'What do you think it's worth?' "'I ought to ask you that. "'I'm not the fortune-teller.' true said pancks what's it worth you shall live to see miss dorrit releasing the hand by slow degrees he drew all his fingers through his prongs of hair so that they stood up in their most portentous manner and repeated slowly remember what i say miss dorrit you shall live to see she could not help showing that she was much surprised if it were only by his knowing so much about her. "'Ah, oh, that's it,' said Pancks, pointing at her. "'Miss Dorrit, not that, ever.' More surprised than before, and a little more frightened, she looked to him for an explanation of his last words. "'Not that,' said Pancks, making with great seriousness an imitation of a surprised look and manner that appeared to be unintentionally grotesque. "'Don't do that!' "'never on seeing me, no matter when, no matter where. "'I am nobody. "'Don't take on to mind me. "'Don't mention me. "'Take no notice. "'Will you agree, Miss Dorrit?' "'I hardly know what to say,' returned little Dorrit, quite astounded. "'Why?' "'Because I'm a fortune-teller. Pancks the Gypsy.' i haven't told you so much of your fortune yet miss dorrit as to tell you what's behind me on that little hand i told you you shall live to see is it agreed miss dorrit agreed that i am am to to take no notice of me away from here unless i take on first not to mind me when i come and go it's very easy i am no loss i am not handsome I'm not good company I'm only my proprietor's grubber. You need do no more than think Ah, Panks the Gypsy at his fortune telling. He'll tell the rest of my fortune one day. I shall live to know it. Is it agreed, Miss Dorrit? It, yes, faltered little Dorrit, whom he greatly confused. I suppose so while you do no harm. Good. Mr. Panks glanced at the wall of the adjoining room, and stooped forward. Honest creature, woman of capital points, but heedless and a loose talker, Miss Dorrit. With that, he rubbed his hands, as if the interview had been very satisfactory to him, panted away to the door, and urbanely nodded himself out again. If little Dorrit were beyond measure perplexed by this curious conduct on the part of her new acquaintance, and by finding herself involved in this singular treaty, her perplexity was not diminished by ensuing circumstances. Besides that Mr. Pancks took every opportunity afforded him in Mr. Casby's house, of significantly glancing at her, and snorting at her, which was not much, after what he had done already, he began to pervade her daily life. She saw him in the street, constantly. When she went to Mr. Casby's, he was always there when she went to mrs clennam's he came there on any pretence as if to keep her in his sight a week had not gone by when she found him to her astonishment in the lodge one night conversing with the turnkey on duty and to all appearance one of his familiar companions her next surprise was to find him equally at his ease within the prison to hear of his presenting himself among the visitors at her father's sunday levee, to see him arm in arm with a collegiate friend about the yard To learn, from fame, that he had greatly distinguished himself one evening at the social club that held its meetings in the snuggery, by addressing a speech to the members of the institution, singing a song, and treating the company to five gallons of ale, report madly added a bushel of shrimps. The effect on Mr. Plornish of such of these phenomena, as he became an eye witness of in his faithful visits, made an impression on little Dorrit only second to that produced by the phenomena themselves. They seemed to gag and bind him. He could only stare, and sometimes weakly mutter that it wouldn't be believed down Bleeding Heart Yard that this was Pancks, But he never said a word more, or made a sign more, even to Little Dorrit. Mr. Pancks crowned his mysteries by making himself acquainted with Tip in some unknown manner, and taking a Sunday saunter into the college on that gentleman's arm. Throughout he never took any notice of Little Dorrit, Say once or twice when he happened to come close to her, and there was no one very near, on which occasions he said in passing, with a friendly look and a puff of encouragement, "'Panks! A gypsy! Fortune-telling!' Little Dorrit worked and strove as usual, wondering at all this, but keeping her wonder, as she had from her earliest years, kept many heavier loads in her own breast. A change had stolen, and was stealing yet over the patient heart." every day found her something more retiring than the day before. To pass in and out of the prison unnoticed, and elsewhere to be overlooked and forgotten, were, for herself, her chief desires. To her own room, too—strangely assorted room for her delicate youth and character—she was glad to retreat as often as she could, without desertion of any duty. There were afternoon times when she was unemployed, when visitors dropped in to play a hand at cards with her father when she could be spared and was better away. Then she would flit along the yard, climb the scores of stairs that led to her room, and take her seat at the window. Many combinations did those spikes upon the wall assume, many light shapes did the strong iron weave itself into, many golden touches fell upon the rust, while little Dorrit sat there musing. New zigzags sprung into the cruel pattern sometimes, when she saw it through a burst of tears, but beautified or hardened still, always over it and under it and through it. She was fain to look in her solitude, seeing everything with that ineffaceable brand. A garret, and a marshalsea garret, without compromise, was Little Dorrit's room. Beautifully kept, it was ugly in itself, and had little but cleanliness and air to set it off for what embellishment she had ever been able to buy, had gone to her father's room. Howbeit, it, for this poor place she showed an increasing love, and to sit in it alone became her favourite rest. Insomuch that on a certain afternoon, during the Pank's Mysteries, when she was seated at her window, and heard Maggie's well-known step coming up the stairs, she was very much disturbed by the apprehension of being summoned away. As Maggie's step came higher up and nearer, She trembled and faltered, and it was as much as she could do to speak, when Maggie at length appeared. "'Please, little mother,' said Maggie, panting for breath, "'you must come down and see him. He's here.' "'Who, Maggie?' "'Who, of course, Mr. Clennam. He's in your father's room, and he says to me, Maggie.' will you be so kind and go and say it's only me i'm not very well maggie i had better not go i'm going to lie down see i lie down now to ease my head say with my grateful regard that you left me so or i would have come well it ain't very polite though little mother said the staring maggie to turn your face away neither maggie was very susceptible to personal slights and very ingenious in inventing them put in both your hands afore your face too she went on "'If you can't bear the looks of a poor thing, "'it will be better to tell her so at once "'and not go and shut her out like that, "'hurting her feelings and breaking her heart at ten-year-old, poor thing.' "'It's to ease my head, Maggie.' "'Well, and if you cry to ease your head, little mother, "'let me cry too. "'Don't go and have all the crying to yourself.' "'expostulated Maggie. "'That aunt not being greedy,' and immediately began to blubber. "'It was with some difficulty that she could be induced to go back with the excuse. "'But the promise of being told a story, of old her great delight, "'on condition that she concentrated her faculties upon the errand, "'and left her little mistress to herself for an hour longer, "'combined with the misgiving on Maggie's part "'that she had left her good temper at the bottom of the staircase,' prevailed. So away she went, muttering her message all the way to keep it in her mind, and, at the appointed time, came back. "'He was very sorry, I can tell you,' she announced, "'and wanted to send a doctor. And he's coming again to-morrow, he is, and I don't think he'll have a good sleep to-night, a hearing about your head, little mother. Oh, my! Ain't you been a-crying?' I think I have a little, Maggie. A little? Oh! But it's all over now, all over for good, Maggie, and my head is much better and cooler, and I am quite comfortable. I am very glad I did not go down. Her great staring child tenderly embraced her, and having smoothed her hair and bathed her forehead and eyes with cold water, offices in which her awkward hands became skilful, hugged her again. "'exulted in her brighter looks, "'and stationed her in her chair by the window. "'Over against this chair, "'Maggie, with apoplectic exertions "'that were not at all required, "'dragged the box, which was her seat "'on story-telling occasions, "'sat down upon it, hugged her own knees, "'and said, with a voracious appetite for stories, "'and with widely opened eyes, "'Now, little mother, let's have a un "'What shall it be about, Maggie?' oh let's have a princess said maggie and let her be a regular one beyond all belief you know little dorrit considered for a moment and with a rather sad smile upon her face which was flushed by the sunset began maggie there was once upon a time a fine king and he had everything he could wish for and a great deal more he had gold and silver diamonds and rubies, riches of every kind. He had palaces, and he had hospitals, interposed Maggie, still nursing her knees. Let him have hospitals, because they're so comfortable, hospitals, with lots of jigging. Yes, he had plenty of them, and he had plenty of everything. Plenty of baked potatoes, for instance, said Maggie. Plenty of everything. Law. "'Chuckled Maggie, giving her knees a hug. "'Wasn't it prime?' "'This king had a daughter, "'who was the wisest and most beautiful princess "'that ever was seen. "'When she was a child, she understood all her lessons "'before her masters taught them to her. "'And when she was grown up, she was the wonder of the world.' now near the palace where this princess lived there was a cottage in which there was a poor little tiny woman who lived all alone by herself an old woman said maggie with an unctuous smack of her lips no not an old woman quite a young one i wonder she warn't afraid said maggie "Come on please the princess passed the cottage nearly every day and whenever she went by in her beautiful carriage she saw the poor tiny woman spinning at her wheel and she looked at the tiny woman and the tiny woman looked at her so one day she stopped the coachman a little way from the cottage and got out and walked on and peeped in at the door and there as usual was the tiny woman spinning at her wheel and she looked at the princess and the princess looked at her "'Like trying to stare one another out,' said Maggie. "'Please go on, little mother.' "'The princess was such a wonderful princess "'that she had the power of knowing secrets, "'and she said to the tiny woman, "'Why do you keep it there?' "'This showed her directly that the princess knew "'why she lived all alone by herself, spinning at her wheel.' And she kneeled down at the princess's feet and asked her never to betray her, so the princess said, "I never will betray you. Let me see it." So the tiny woman closed the shutter of the cottage window and fastened the door, and trembling from head to foot for fear that any one should suspect her, opened a very secret place and showed the princess a shadow Lor! said Maggie. "'It was the shadow of someone who had gone by long before, "'of someone who had gone on far away, quite out of reach, "'never, never to come back. "'It was bright to look at, "'and when the tiny woman showed it to the princess, "'she was proud of it with all her heart, "'as a great, great treasure. "'When the princess had considered it a little while, "'she said to the tiny woman, "'And you keep watch over this every day?' and she cast down her eyes and whispered yes then the princess said remind me why to which the other replied that no one so good and kind had ever passed that way and that was why in the beginning she said too that nobody missed it that nobody was the worse for it that some one had gone on to those who were expecting him some one was a man then interposed maggie Little Dorrit timidly said yes, she believed so, and resumed, had gone on to those who were expecting him, and that this remembrance was stolen or kept back from nobody. The princess made answer, Ah, but when the cottager died, it would be discovered there. The tiny woman told her, No, when that time came, it would sink quietly into her own grave, and would never be found well to be sure said maggie go on please the princess was very much astonished to hear this as you may suppose maggie and well she might be said maggie so she resolved to watch the tiny woman and see what came of it every day she drove in her beautiful carriage by the cottage door and there she saw the tiny woman always alone by herself spinning at her wheel and she looked at the tiny woman, and the tiny woman looked at her. At last, one day, the wheel was still, and the tiny woman was not to be seen. When the princess made inquiries why the wheel had stopped, and where the tiny woman was, she was informed that the wheel had stopped because there was nobody to turn it, the tiny woman being dead. "'They ought to have took her to the hospital.' "'said Maggie, and then she'd have got over it. "'The princess, after crying a very little for the loss of the tiny woman, "'dried her eyes and got out of her carriage "'at the place where she had stopped it before, "'and went to the cottage and peeped in at the door. "'There was nobody to look at her now, "'and nobody for her to look at, "'so she went in at once to search for the treasured shadow. "'But there was no sign of it to be found anywhere.' and then she knew that the tiny woman had told her the truth and that it would never give anybody any trouble and that it had sunk quietly into her own grave and that she and it were at rest together that's all maggie the sunset flush was so bright on little dorrit's face when she came thus to the end of her story that she interposed her hand to shade it had she got to be old "'Maggie asked. "'The tiny woman?' "'Ah!' "'I don't know,' said Little Dorrit. "'But it would have been just the same "'if she had been ever so old.' "'Would it, really?' said Maggie. "'Well, I suppose it would, though,' "'and sat staring and ruminating. "'She sat so long with her eyes wide open,' that at length little Dorrit, to entice her from her box, rose and looked out of window. As she glanced down into the yard, she saw Panks come in, and leer up with the corner of his eye as he went by. "'Who's he, little mother?' said Maggie. She had joined her at the window, and was leaning on her shoulder. "'I see him come in and out often.' "'I have heard him called a fortune-teller,' said little Dorrit but i doubt if he could tell many people even their past or present fortunes couldn't have told the princess hers said maggie little dorrit looking musingly down into the dark valley of the prison shook her head nor the tiny woman hers said maggie no said little dorrit with the sunset very bright upon her but let us come away from the window End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Four